0: The show.
1: You know what time it is, don't you? That's right. It's Drinky Fun Time, where we drink booze with some of the most interesting people at the coolest places around. So grab a drink, chill out, and enjoy the show. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Please, stop laughing at me. Uh, I am Dan Dunn. This is Drinky Fun Time. Sitting across from me, as always, brings me great comfort, Emma Patterson. Emma, how are you?
2: I'm great. I've got your back, Dan. Good to
1: see you. Well, I need it down here because we're in New Orleans. We're in, a, we're in a strange city. I don't know my way around necessarily. I need some help down here. You know, it's uh, came down. We're doing Tales of the Cocktail. I've been listening to some of the recent episodes. You see, we've been doing this. It's the biggest cocktail festival in uh, probably in America, right? We say, definitely probably. in America.
2: This is Christmas. It's this Christmas is week, week. The bartender.
1: Did I ever tell you? So I've been doing this. i I've been coming for about ten years to Tales of the Cocktail. And my very first memory of Tales sort of set the scene. What was going to happen? I went into the Carousel Bar. We were there the other day. It's a very famous bar inside the Hotel Monteleone, which is the headquarters of the festival. Now, the Carousel Bar spins. It, very it, it is slowly. An carousel. It moves. Around. Hence the name. So. My first day, I, I get in there, I sit down, and there was a guy next to me uh, who had uh, been some rough years on this guy. He was not, I don't think he was part of the festival. I think he was a local. He had about two or three Marlboros going in front of him at the time. you could still smoke in the bar back then. Uh, and he had a couple of drinks. And uh, <laughs> he, I'll never forget this. I think I put it in a book. He had a shirt on that says, Love Sucks true love swallows so as you can imagine the ladies were loving this guy (laughs) so no so this is i'm talking to him and i don't know if he like planned this because it seemed like it's something out of a movie here's the first thing the guy says to me he turns and looks at me he says you know they say and i mean this is how he's talking you know they say drinking kills all the brain cells and i'm then how come they never kill the fucking ones that make me want to drink? <laughs> <laughs> that was my f- first moment of tales. <laughs> so, Brilliant. And it's only gotten better since. Um, so we're, uh, where are we? We're in Curio? Curio. Yeah, curio. What is a Curio? Is a Curio? What is it? It's a thing. What is it? It's like a, th- a collectible? A
2: curio. Uh, pff, anyone?
1: I don't anyone know. Anyone on the
2: table now? No clue. <laughs> well, I'm going oh, to Dr. Google. Out. Fred's pulling in out. Google. Google. Yes. By wait, so
1: you know, that obviously there are other people here besides Emma and I, and I guess <laughs> we're going to bring it on right away. Uh, a friend of the show, he's been on numerous times, and we always, always are, are thrilled and honored to have him on. In my opinion, the one of the preeminent experts on distilled spirits yes. in the world. He's fantastic. Uh, author, lecturer, all-around great guy, Fred Minnick.
3: Thank you, thank you. Welcome back, Good to have you Greg. back. Good to have you back.
1: And, uh, and, and also equally excited about uh, this guest who's never been on the show. And uh, she is here for a very special reason because we're going to be getting into a a brand new uh, liquor brand that she has spearheaded and she has brought into existence. Uh, she is also an author. Everybody's writing shit. Everybody's <laughs> writing these days because it's so lucrative. Uh, <laughs> Right. Please give a warm, drinky, fun, uh,
2: we'll see the show. fun time. Uh, I've
1: been in New Orleans a long time. <laughs> drinky, fun time. Welcome to Fawn Weaver. Thank Yay. you. Yeah. Thank welcome, you. Welcome, welcome. Thanks, guys. Tell us, Fawn. Tell us about you and what you're bringing us today because we're very excited about this.
0: Sure. Well, I am the founder of Uncle Near's Premium Whiskey. The co-founder is right next to us, but he will never get on a mic. That handsome guy over there, my husband. Gentleman filming <laughs> us. The gentleman filming us yes. is, is, is our co-founder, is Keith Weaver. And Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey is out of Tennessee. And it is the first brand ever to honor an African-American. Not just whiskey, but across the board, any brand. Okay.
1: Fantastic. Now, there's, now you're uh, maybe you're being humble here. There's more... To this story than just that. There's, <laughs> and maybe we bring in uh, Fred to tell. So uh, just for the so you know out there how how Fawn, how I got introduced to Fawn was through Fred. Yes, who told me this really incredible story. And yeah. maybe you guys can tag team on this story a little bit.
3: Well, I, I, I like to to like kind of give the story in a, in a broader context of of what our country once was. I mean, I, our, our country used to enslave people. Yes. And, and we had um, indentured servants through, throughout the United States, especially in the South. And the enslaved persons who were, had uh, distilling prowess would actually bring more at an auction because the distillers could use them to help you know, make money and build their brands. And every major Kentucky distillery um, had slaves. And same in Tennessee. And um, a lot of them we don't know. We, we don't know much about them. Some of them are listed in tax records as just Bob. Uh, Jacob Spears, who is one of the people who is credited with uh, creating the very first drops of, of bourbon. And all the records of him, he's it's talked about like how his enslaved persons helped him create what was considered the best uh whiskey in bourbon county at that time and where at the site that is now woodford reserve you know in their in their records they have many uh enslaved persons there and at in tennessee you know the most prominent distillery there is uh jack daniels yes and jack daniel the jack daniel was um actually taught to distill by a gentleman by the name of Near screen and he was uh, a former enslaved person from uh, of dan call and i guess that's kind of a, a good place for for fawn to talk about it you know go from here because she likes to she likes to talk about how you know in a sense that jack was a good guy in in this in this story like it it's it's hard as hard as it may be to sound it may as hard as as hard as that may sound like right now you know, in 1860s and 70s, you know, the, uh, for a, a white man to work side by side or even learn from um, an African-American, a former enslaved person, you know, that's, that shows a sign of respect. And if you take a look at a lot of the f- photographs of these, uh, these distillers, they actually have African-Americans sitting right next to white people. And that's, you know, for the time, that was, that was a big deal
1: sure the font
0: yes wait we now have our tennessee gold yes so can we yes can, can we get cheer? A, can we get a wait. cheers so this is our tennessee gold so it is a a bit of a, a take on a gold rush if you will so yeah. it, it is the whiskey and honey syrup mm-hmm. and lemon topped with ginger beer it's delicious so this is our tennessee gold so when you see tennessee gold on the menus that's that's what it is okay yep.
1: so now you your involvement
0: Yes. How did
1: you come to know the story yeah. of Nearest and uh, and and then take it to where it is now?
0: Well, Fred and I have a mutual friend who it, he has been friends with him much longer, but I, I read it in an article in the New York Times by Clay Risen, a journalist who is not only their whiskey journalist, if you will, he does the reviews and, and things of that nature, and he is, I believe, the associate editor on the op-ed side But he's also a huge civil rights advocate and has been from Nashville, uh, white, but he has been a civil rights advocate his entire life from the time he was very young. And so he shares this story, and my husband and I are in Singapore, and we're reading it on the cover of the New York Times. The challenge with the story is that it was very light on proof. And now that we've, we've dug into it even more, we know the name was spelled wrong. A lot of the information was incorrect, but it's all that there was. And now that Clay and I know each other really, really well, and I understand what his intent was. He says, listen, I didn't have the ability to dive in like I wanted to, so I lobbed it up with the hope that someone would take it from there and really dive in, and it just so happened that it spoke You're to that my spirit. Someone. I was that someone. Wow. God, God, God loves someone. that
1: here. <laughs> yeah. God loves that here.
0: I was at someone, so I I dove in and began doing what little research you could find online, which was really really a small amount. But in the interview that Clay did, he interviewed one of who who at the time he believed was one of Nearest's descendants. And now that I've actually done their family tree, he is a descendant, but it was someone related to Nearest, was married to someone in his family, so it's not bloodline in the least. But it was the only descendant that had been interviewed for the for the article. So I get on a plane, and I go to Lynchburg, and I go to interview this gentleman, Claude Eady. At the time, he was 91 years old, And I arrived to interview him. But before then, I decided to stop in the library and see what can I find in the library. And there was nothing. And I'm going just looking for anything on Nearest's family, anything on any African-American, really. And there was nothing in the library. Now, the reason for that is they had moved it over to archives because Nearest has a descendant who really loved genealogy and would show up every day. And had been for about 30 years. So they moved all the records. the. But for a person coming in from Los Angeles and coming to a city called Lynchburg, Tennessee, and I know that there were African-Americans there and there's nothing in the library, it was a little jarring. Sure. And to Fred's point, the only thing that I found in the library related to African-Americans were the deed books in which we were being deeded.
3: Wow. Only thing in the entire library. Those are so sobering when you come across it. It's, it's just like I've come across those and, and like runaway slave records. And you just it's like it, it stops you in your tracks when you're in, in researching. It's, it's very difficult to come across those.
1: Well, well all I can say is this. Thank God we've evolved and yes. yeah. everything is fine now. Yes. Race relations in America solved.
0: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh no, yes. definitely not.
2: Fine. But listen, <laughs> let me tell you this.
0: Let me tell you this, Dan. The one thing about this story that with everything going on in race relations, this is the one story that continues to give me hope. Sure. Really Really the only story at this point, because it's a bit of a mess out here right Mm -hmm. now when it comes to race relations. And this is the one story that continues to give me hope, because when I spent time interviewing the African-American elders in Lynchburg, so I'm talking about those who are 70 years old and older, Mm -hmm. so that means they lived through the civil rights era. They lived through certain parts of the Ku Klux Klan when it was at its height they experienced all of that I mean the Ku Klux Klan began in Pulaski which is not that far from Lynchburg but when I would talk to them about race relations and say when I say race relations and and how things were between blacks and whites in this community of Lynchburg would you say positive to negative was it 60 40 70 30 80 20 90 10 Without one person knowing the person's answer before them, they all said one by one, ninety ten, positive. Positive. So I began that this story and piecing it together, understanding that all of the African American elders in Lynchburg were saying it was ninety ten. So they were telling me from the gate, look for the truth. Beautiful.
1: Oh, by the way, Fred is looking at us, going, "I've had enough of this." <laughs> oh, no, not at all. No, um, not at Fred, all, Fred. We would love to have you, but Fred is Fred's very in demand here at Tales of the Cocktail. We, yes, we, you've got to go do a seminar.
3: Yeah, I have a seminar on uh, mead, uh, which is the world's uh, oldest uh, drink. Wine? It uh, is it wine? It's a honey wine. Yeah, so it's made from uh, fermented honey. Um, I wrote a book about it that just uh, came out. and
2: Is it called All About Mead?
3: It's called Mead, uh, the Legends, Lore, and Libations of the World's Oldest Drink. And my mom, when she saw this, she's like, why the hell did you write this? You know, mm-hmm. it's like everyone, everyone who's seen it is like, this is so outside well, of Well, originally, he f-
1: called it Mead 2. Yeah. But then, <laughs> like, I better change I got it. Hashtag Mead 2. And people were getting confused. Well, Fred Minnick, it's always great uh, yes. to have you on. But i got to be honest, frankly, Fawn's a little more interesting anyway.
3: Fawn, so, Fawn is way more uh, interesting. Thank and,
1: God you're leaving.
3: And um. i, I got to tell you, <laughs> I am so proud of her and everything that she's doing. And um, for years, it, I felt like it was just kind of Clay and I writing about or even talking about um, enslaved persons and, and distilleries. You know, I wrote a piece about it for Huffington Post like four or five years ago. And, great uh, piece.
0: Search it on Google. Oh, great, Great piece.
3: And it's just, there's just not been a lot. And it's, 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 doors are opening because of Fawn. Yeah. She's kicking those doors down. And I'm, uh, <laughs> doors and are I'm,
0: opening because you and Clay were relentless until someone picked up the story.
3: You're probably the greatest uh, addition to to American whiskey that we've had in a long time.
0: Wow. Uh, hey, look and at that. I mean, you, that. Okay, hey, cheers. let's raise a glass. Yeah.
2: Nice. Oh, my God. everybody. Off he goes. See you, Fred. Into the heat. Thank you, man. Bye, I'll, I'll see you later on. Thank you.
1: Thank God we got rid of that guy. Okay, now.
2: And that's a lovely thing to um, say, but I do believe <laughs> it was the truth. And I'm, as a British person, learning so much uh, about this right now. And I'm curious to know, like, what is the, not to put a downside on this, but what resistance did you receive in, in your quest to find out what was going on or what had gone on?
0: Ironically, the greatest resistance I've received is from African Americans. Ah, And the reason is, is the story. This is one of the very rare stories that it was a very positive relationship between the African American and the white person. So we don't not know about Nearest Green because of Jack Daniel. Mm. Jack Daniel, I know everyone makes it synonymous with the company, but Jack Daniel was a person. Yeah. And he did not see race. Every indication, every person I've interviewed that was around him, meaning one generation removed. So that means that their parents worked with him or knew him personally. And every single one, African-American elders, they all had nothing but wonderful things to say about him. Yesterday, uh, last night, as I was on the plane here, I learned that Nearest's eldest descendant in Indianapolis passed away, and I was just with her a couple of weeks ago. She called me and she says, "Fawn, I haven't seen you since September." And I said, "I'm telling you, just saw me in in May." And she says, "Well, it seems like it's been a long time. When are you coming?" And I said, "How about I figure out how to get there within the next two weeks?" She says, "Okay, good. Bye," and she <laughs> hangs up <on> the <laughs> phone. And but. When people see this picture, there's really only two pictures of Jack Daniel that survived or that were ever taken. And, and one is with his crew. And the African-American sitting next to her, is uh, next to, to Jack, is who raised her. Oh, wow. And so Daddy George, so she knew firsthand everything about Jack. Yeah. And you could not, I have not found one African-American elder in Lynchburg that has anything but incredibly positive things to say About Jack. And that is what spurred my research and continuing to really dig in because the story as it had been told around the world was very negative. They thought that Nearest was Jack's slave. They thought that that Jack stole the recipe from Nearest. That's what was circulating around. But as I dove in talking to both Nearest's family and Jack's family, it was very clear that the press got it wrong this time and that the true story is that you have this young white kid who was orphaned very early. So Jack is the 10th child. Most people don't know this. He was the 10th child. His mother died at 4 months old. He was 4 months old when his mother died. Mm -hmm. Mm. And she she passed away of typhus fever. She contracted it. 7 days later she was gone. So you've got this man, his father, who had 10 children. And you've got this little 4 month old. And so now your neighbor is wet nursing your son. Your son is having to learn very early on that life is not going to be easy. Life is going to be difficult. You're going to have to kind of work through it. And so, where we find him in his biography initially is on the farm, the Dan Call farm, working as a chore boy. This was not a privileged position. So he was very young when he went there. By all accounts, eight years old.
1: Well, there's <clears throat> we were we had talked about this uh, previously on a different show. There's a where his they set his age at 1850. But his mother died in 47. So no, would... his
0: mother died in 49. So I have her death certificate. 49. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. So I have her death certificate, which is how I know that she contracted typhus fever and, and was only alive for seven days. So Jack Daniel was born in September of 1848. Okay. okay. His mother passed away January twenty-seventh, 1849. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And then his father passed away in the Civil War when he was 15 years old. And right. so you've got this chore boy who's working for the same man that was renting nearest. They were birth, both workers for the same person yeah. on Can the I same farm. Can I ask
1: you stupid question. When you say renting.
0: Right. So most people th- assume that all slaves were owned. And they were. However, those slave owners would then rent out their most skilled slaves. They could huh. get more money for them renting them. Huh. And so Dan Call, the preacher in the distiller, who had previously been credited for teaching Jack Daniel, he was the person who was renting Nearest Green. Gotcha. And Nearest Green worked on dis- on a distillery on the 313 acre property. So if you look at the Uncle Nearest bottle, will you grab the bottle? If you look at the Uncle Nearest... Wait, Ner- Fawn's
1: just asking random people that are walking Sorry. By. Huh? Grab the bottle.
0: <laughs> hey, you. Hey, you. Hey. hey. In the hat and
1: the beats. Get me a bottle. <laughs> oh.
0: So if you, if you look on our Uncle Nearest bottle, there is a sketch of a home. That home is on the 313-acre property where both Nearest and Jack lived, where they worked for the same man, and it is where distillery number seven... Was the old, located old number seven. I don't, you know, I, I, I can't confirm what Jack meant by old number seven. What I will say is the distillery that is on that property, which we own, and where my research resides, is in this house. So we are almost completely finished with fully restoring the home, so that it looks exactly the way that it did when so Jack right now, and Dan Call lived you there. You are
2: restoring the home. Oh yeah, Hensburg. yes, wow. it's almost
0: complete at this oh. point. So when you start when you start looking Thank into you. this, yes.
1: did you ever could you ever have imagined that it would lead to where Absolutely it leads not. now?
0: And <laughs> like you went from not.
1: reading this article to now you own the property. Yes. You own the brand, yes. you are you are have become this, you know ambassador for, yes. for, for getting this out there, right? For getting this out that this is actually what went down and what happened. But but beyond that history what about the whiskey itself? Let's yeah. talk, I want to talk a little bit about the whiskey cuz we have some right in front yes. of us here and I think you know what you can have the greatest story in the world. Yes, it uh, comes I can down tell you a great whiskey. story. I've got some amazing pee stories. Yeah, you never <laughs> want to drink my pee. I'll so, tell you that. Oh, yeah, oh, no. it, oh, oh. oh. it's so
0: terrible. What's so have you here? ever have you ever been to Lynchburg? <laughs> Do you
1: say what's wrong? Have with you me? been? How much Jan, have has? you been to Lynchburg, what? Tennessee? I've never been oh. to Lynchburg. Yeah. yeah. Okay,
0: so you guys need to come and be my guest.
2: Okay. Well, I'm going to come for
0: the chicken wings. You must for the chicken wings at Miss Mary Bobo's. What? So Miss Mary Bobo's is actually owned by Jack Daniels, and Miss Mary Bobo's is Miss Mary Bobo was a of Jack by way of marriage. So Jack had no children. So all of his descendants were by way of marriage or they by way of his siblings. And uh, so Miss Mary Bobo's, the home that is there, where everyone goes after they go to the distillery and do the tour there, they then go to Miss Mary Bobo's for the best fried chicken in Tennessee. So you must. you I must believe come. you. And, uh, and so, but Miss Mary Bobo's is the great-grandmother of our head of whiskey operations. Okay. And she was the, she, when she and I met, she said sometime down the road, we didn't realize what she did. At, she's the one who actually sold us this house because Lem Motlow's granddaughter. Con- so,
1: Lem, so, you know, Lem Motlow was Jack Daniels' nephew.
0: Who, who owned the distillery. Who owned the distillery, yes. yeah. Who took over the distillery when Jack was still alive. Yeah. And we met her early on there because we were doing research. And, of course, she wants to know who's coming into town and doing research on her family. And as a part of that in realizing we were not there to harm Jack, uh, that everything I had learned up until that point was very positive toward Jack Daniel, the man. Very, very positive. And so she is the one who connected me with her cousin to show us this house. Right. And she says, you know, in Jack's book, the biography that you read that brought you here, you realize that property's for sale. She's the one, so Lim Motlow's granddaughter is the one who told us the property was wow. for sale. We purchased the property from her cousin, uh, who, who's the realtor on it, and as I continue doing the research and begin building out my research room in the home, you've got thousands of documents coming in from all over the country, thousands of original artifacts coming in so that we could piece this story of nearest Screen together. And Sherry Moore is her name. Is she is watching me piece all this together and I'm telling her about her own family. So Jack's <laughs> family is her family, right? And so I'm telling her about this amazing relationship between African Americans and whites in this little town called Lynchburg that I believe happened because you had this little five foot two white guy and this big African American guy who are walking through town together. Like, how can you possibly be racist when the big guy in town, although he was short, the big man in town is always flanked by African Americans. You have to respect, and this is and this is the that. thing you're
1: saying. Going back to what you said earlier about this is what gives you hope. It's what gives me hope that we're going to be able to make it through. Which right now is one of the more racially polarizing times. I think you I know, am, I in my t- lifetime, in other my than when lifetime. I was a kid. I mean, when yes. I was I was born at the tail end of the civil rights uh, movement back right. in the in, and. I've never seen anything like this, but, yes. it, but it is stories like this that make me go, yeah, we can, we can, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this, and we're going we're gonna to be, you know.
0: L- let me tell you why I believe we're going to get through this and why I believe that this story is going to be the catalyst for good stories between race relations. Number one, if going through slavery and immediately post-slavery, you can have an African-American mentor and a white mentee and two people that do not see race as a barrier. Jack then founds his own distillery, names his mentor as his first master distiller, making him the first, nearest the first African-American master distiller. But he also pays him in such a way that not only was he the wealthiest African-American in the area, but he was wealthier than a lot of the whites.
1: Yeah.
0: And you have his son, George Green, who if you go to the Jack Daniel Distillery, the entire top portion of that distillery was, was his land, was George Green's land, and he had white sharecroppers. Wow. Like, it was not a, it was, it was just different. So if we could make, if two people, if Jack and Nearest and then their descendants could make it work then, mm-hmm. we sure as hell can make it work now. Make it work like, now. we don't have
2: that same difficulty, right? I think what's fascinating about this to me is that we're talking about a time when there is this man, Jack Daniel, who and I can't, I haven't heard any bad stories about him. He's generous and he didn't see color and he was loved. Very much that, so. And so I'm curious, what were his white neighbors thinking and how did they oh, receive?
1: They were fine with it, I'm sure.
2: I because they still <laughs> loved him. Yes. And therefore, what was the impact that he had on them? Do you think that? When do he you think you're saying? Do you
1: think that he uh, maybe they inspired them to, like to high-mindedness? Yeah. I would without, like to think
0: without so. Without question. So, so Anne Helen, who who passed away last night, and Daddy George, so George Green, the man that's in the picture, who raised her there at the top of Jack, what is now Jack Daniel Distillery. And when I asked her the question about the just race relations in general in Jim Crow era, right? So in Tennessee, you had laws on the books, which meant she had to go through the back door. You had separate water fountains. You couldn't sit at the counter, all these different things. And I said, the first time I interviewed her, I said, and on camera, which was, I am going to cherish this forever. I said, and Helen, and by the way, aunt and uncle is a a sign of respect. Yes. And so I said, I said, Aunt Helen, when I say race and, you know, racist person in Lynchburg, like who comes to mind? And she thought for a second and she's like, hmm. I said, well, Jim Crow era, how did it feel to have to go through the back door? And she's like, the what? Is it Jim Crow laws? And she's like, I don't know nothing about no Jim Crow laws. Exact quote. Exact quote. Is it, let, let me get this straight. So, You were not allowed to walk through the front door, right? And she says, why? Well, because you were required to go through the back. Why would I go through the back door when everything was in the front? (sighs) And so this is going on in a small town called Lynchburg, right? And so she and I, I mean, we had this entire dialogue because she said she loved going down to the town square, which is still pretty well intact, and getting ice cream. And I said, well, didn't you have to go through the back to get the ice cream? And she's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The ice cream was in the front. I went oh, in the front. Goodness. I paid my dime for my ice cream, and I left. Or I think she said a nickel. I paid my nickel for my ice cream, and, and that was it. And I said, well, did anyone ever give you a hard time? And she says, for, for what? It was ice cream. I mean, this is her. This is incredible. So my questions to her didn't even register no. because she did not experience that. However, she did say when her family moved to Indianapolis, she saw a race. For the first time. That
2: must have been But she horrifying. didn't get it
0: in, in, in Lynchburg. So what I will say is, is that you have, back to your question on how did that impact the neighbors and what did they think. I think that when you are the biggest person around, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. But They're what about, going to what about, fall in line.
1: But what about now? Yeah. I know you must be getting, I know there are people out there.
2: There are, people out, are there.
1: people out there that do not like
2: <laughs> the story. The
1: story you're telling.
2: I right? I and, get a lot of I'm that. And I'm
1: wondering yeah. how much of that has actually come back at you.
0: So I have exactly. And if you think about this, a year ago, I completely changed the history of the world's most iconic American brand. Sure. They updated the history to per, to reflect. You killed their- Hugh Hefner. <laughs> oh, I was thinking
1: <laughs> it was you, huh? No.
0: Playboy's got to be up there with Jack Daniels, right? Come on, yeah. But (laughs) you have—I mean, when you think about it, you would expect that I would have guns and bows and arrows coming at me from every side. I have exactly one troll. Wow, one in a year, and so I will get people when I'll go places. Oh, gosh, no. That gives them too much credit. You're
1: talking about like an internet troll. An
0: internet troll who will literally go everywhere. And so I'll go people, and and people will say, what is this guy's problem? And I said, but here's the thing. You're all asking about the same guy. Do you understand how remarkable that is? That we took a story that had been completely white, and we infused into it the truth, which involved heavily an African-American and I have one internet troll, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you know what it is. I'll the crazy take it. thing is, it's Donald Trump. That's <laughs> <laughs> weird. <laughs> All up in Again, there. Again, let's not <laughs> give that person more airtime.
2: Oh God, please um, not. Uh, please don't. I, I, sorry, forgive me because I don't have the knowledge that Dan and Fred and people have. Yeah. How did Nearest come to learn how to make whiskey?
0: Well, there's a couple of things is that, number one, we know he began in Maryland. So he's beginning in an area where they were making whiskey long before it came into Kentucky and into Tennessee. The specific process that he taught and that he distilled using was the Lincoln County process. So the only difference between Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey is the Lincoln County process. Lincoln County process is named after the county where Nearest made his whiskey and where he lived. It is the filtering of sugar, the filtering of of bourbon through sugar maple charcoal. That's it, right? So the only real true difference between bourbon and Tennessee whiskey is what Nearest taught. That is what we now know and what we understand. Where he learned it from, there's no way to know. Because remember, going back to the deed books that we were talking about earlier, he was property, not a person. Until December, I believe December 13th, 1865, he was property. So it's impossible to have records before that point.
1: When you say those deed but, but and Fred had mentioned that, so yes. what, are in, like, what, what oh, are in them?
0: So the deed books are if you're deeding property. So what they would have is it was Fawn Weaver deeds to Dan Dunn, and he, she deeds a home, 20 acres, three cattle heads, six pigs, two donkeys, four Negroes. That Jeez. is what was in the deed books. We were property. Mm. And so the, the reason why I find this story so remarkable and the reason I'm completely undeterred no matter, and, and when, when we talked about this earlier, really the only, the only people that I've had other than the internet troll is you have African Americans that are not happy with the way that the story is being told because the original story, as they understood, was Jack stole the recipe and that this was Jack's slave. And I'm coming back as an African American and saying, hey guys, that story was wrong. This, Jack was one of the good guys. Well, in this political racial climate, there are a lot of people that don't want to hear that there was someone who was was white at that time who was a good guy. And that's a really hard pill to swallow when you're looking for all of the negative stories at that point to be able to point to.
1: And there's so Mm -hmm. much pent-up frustration about what's going on. This is a story that's been told over and over and over and over again. It's funny, I I remember you uh, just popped into my head. I was thinking about, uh, you know, in the Public Enemy song, uh, Fight the Power. Mm -hmm. There's a line at the end, when he says Elvis was a hero to me, to most, but he never meant shit to me. Yes, he's straight out racist. That's like motherfuck him and John Wayne. Yeah. I saw an interview later yes. with Chuck D. Yes. Where Chuck D. came out and said, you know what? I, the story that I heard back in the day was different once I did some digging that Elvis was actually one of the very first musicians to ever, you know, have African-American band members and yes. like, and do, and like. By all accounts, Elvis didn't necessarily see color, and Chuck D said, I feel bad about that line. Yeah. I don't know how bad he felt about it. He was yeah. like, I don't know I feel that bad. He goes, but when I wrote it, it was because it was that reactionary, yes. like, you're mad. You're like, and uh, let's face it, like, all that music was stolen. Like, yeah. I don't want really say stolen, right. but certainly... Uh, there it, it, is no Led Zeppelin, it, there is it, no Elvis it, Presley, there is no... It without, was stolen, yeah, yeah. let's be clear. Yeah, it, it
0: was. There was a lot of it that was stolen, but I think that we have, to re- we have to remember, and it's something that we're dealing with in the political climate right now, where everyone wants to be so far to the left or so far to the right. Exactly. And we have to understand there must be a middle for balance. And so you cannot have every white person that was in the middle, in the mid-1800s, be a bad person. There were good ones. And it's, and it's not only okay to celebrate them, but it's the best thing that we can do in this time frame. And, and I tell people all the time because folks have tried to get me to change this story in order to not speak so positively about Jack Daniel. I can tell you before I walked over here, my shirt that I had on was a Jack Daniel shirt (laughs) and and I own a different brand, right? But I have a high, high, high regard for this man who did not see race and color during a period of time in our country where
2: everyone seemed to define a person on race, on their color. I'm wondering and maybe you can help me I don't know what the age difference was between Jack Daniels and Nearest Green. Yeah. Was it a lot? So, yes. Yes, by all accounts. Now, here's the part that's tricky. Again, he was
0: property. That means he had no birth certificate. Right. We have no idea. From one census to the next, you have no clue. I mean, I believe that one census had him at one age, and then the next census has him at, like, 30 years older. Really? And, but... the reason is is that the census takers would look at a person and guess their age yeah. based on how they looked because they had no birth certificate and they didn't know when they were born. So what we have to do is we have to look at all of the family members yeah. and how old did they believe that nearest was. And so there would be a pretty big gap
2: yeah. between Jack and nearest when they met. And maybe, just maybe, Jack has entered this world where he met nearest at a young age, 7 or 8 years old, let's say, hasn't got parents well has certainly lost his mother and didn't have his father for much longer and just maybe Nearest became a father figure of some description who knows there was a unique situation where he wasn't able to see colour because he his upbringing was not like everyone else. Right.
0: Well, exactly. There, you you have someone who didn't have the luxury of of seeing color. You're both working yes
2: together. Again, together. Because yes, Jack
1: was yeah. Jack wasn't probably too far up the rung, you know from from, from nearest. nearest. You know, like he was also a laborer there too. And yeah. look, you learn you learn yeah. this shit, right? You learn yeah. this shit, and, and he was young enough to maybe not learn it. You know, like he he had to. Fortune, I guess, yes. of, of learning that, like, wow, this guy's awesome, which didn't happen a lot it this, back then.
2: <laughs> Hello, this is Emma from Drinky Fun Time. I'm here with my co host, Dan Dunn. That's me. And uh, I want to talk to you, Dan, about something, and this is important. The truth is, most of us aren't brushing our teeth. Right. We're what? not brushing them for long enough, Dan. And we forget to change the brush on time. And the reason is is because brands out there they're focusing on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing tips. But not Quip. Quip. Quip, yes. What's Quip? Well, I'll tell you what makes Quip so different, shall I? Yes. For starters. Quip is an electric toothbrush. That's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, which I'm really grateful for because I can't afford those ones. And while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to clean our teeth.
1: I love vibrations when I'm cleaning my teeth. There's
2: also a built-in timer, which helps you to clean for the dentist recommended two minutes with guiding pulses. Don't get too excited again. That remind you when to switch sides.
1: You know what? I think I heard of Quip it was on Oprah's O list, wasn't it? Are you bringing Oprah into this? She's got great teeth. And it was on Time's Best Inventions, and it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. And if you can't trust the American Dental Association,
2: Emma, who can who you can trust? You,
1: tru- you can't trust the British one. Look at their teeth.
2: Stop it, you. are fine. They don't fall out. No, you're right. Oprah does back this, and they should. And this is a really good product, and apparently we might get some. But uh, Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushes use Quip every day. Every day. Quip
1: starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip, that's Q-U-I-P.com, getquip.com slash drinky, D-R-I-N-K-Y, right now, You'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Emma, can I repeat it? That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com drinky. Yes.
2: Can I ask, because of the, um, this is not trying to trip you up. I yeah, really no. want to know oh, the yeah. answer. Yeah. So we all agree that we, from what we're talking about, Jack Daniel's is a great guy and his whiskey is fantastic. And as you say, you wore a Jack Daniel's shirt today or earlier. Yeah, it's my pajamas.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. You love it's it. It's a very
2: comfy shirt. You love yes. it. So why does the world need Uncle Nearest whiskey?
0: Well, the world needs Uncle Nearest whiskey because they're two different people. Yes. So you celebrate both. You don't have to choose between celebrating the mentor and the teacher Mm. or celebrating the mentee and the pupil. You celebrate both. And quite frankly, I want to drink the whiskey that honors the teacher and the mentor, (laughs) right? But I still very much so honor the the pupil and the mentee. Yeah. But also
1: the reason you drink whiskey
0: is the taste. The taste is phenomenal. So let's,
1: let's try let's some do of this it. whiskey. Let's, let's do it. Frankly, like I said, you have the greatest story of all time. Come on. If you don't like the whiskey. Let's go. Now let's, now, <laughs> so let's we're going to do a little cheers here. And I want to get... So when you're you you're know, when you're nosing this, Emma, we've talked about this. Yeah. You want to keep your mouth open. You want to you be breathing... Well, I, I can already. You want to be breathing that in. You want to mouth open and the nose. You're going to get it all there. I actually like to take a little tiny bit, a little tiny bit first and kind of coat my palate a little. So I just do like a... Do you chew it? A little bit. Just prime the palate a little, and now I'm priming the palate for it. And then I'm going to take an actual sip and I'm going to get in there. Mm. Mm. The other thing, if you're out there and you're thinking about tasting, how tasting goes, I'm sure you've all been to tastings where you can spit, right? Yeah. And yes, you have to obviously, if you're at a big tasting, you want to keep, you know, pacing's important. But for me, especially with whiskey. Yeah. I have to swallow it because yes. there's that warmth you get in your chest yeah. yes. that is such an essential component of the whole tasting process. Yes. So with this one, uh, what I'm it's it's what I'm getting like first of all there's a, a real nice sweetness to it, but not mm-hmm. a cloying sweetness by any yeah. means. But there's a nice sweetness to it. With a little bit now, what's the what are you what are you using for this? What's the mash bill on this? Sure, thing? So it is.
0: It's 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 corn. It is barley and it is rye. Eighty four eight eight. Okay. Our Tennessee's so not
1: not far off from what Jack's doing.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, none of them are far off because yeah. remember they were all using very similar recipes. It's I get a lot of people that want me to say that this was nearest's recipe that was used for the current. Jack Daniels, and I said, well, I can't say that because everyone was using similar yeah. recipes, and even our Tennessee Silver, which is from an authentic Lynchburg, Tennessee recipe, and even that, you're talking about between the corn and the corn malt, so corn malt was used back then, and it was more common. We've kept it in our Tennessee Silver recipe, but the two combined is still 84%, mm. Yeah, and that is just something that is so people would play a little bit with the barley, with the rye, but that 84 is pretty consistent.
2: And before you stumbled ac- across this fantastic story, which obviously you felt compelled to, to throw all your energy into, and thank God you did, were you a whiskey drinker? I was a whiskey drinker. Oh. I will tell you that I was uh, a, th- the whiskey
0: that brought me into being a whiskey lover. Wait, can I guess? Yes.
1: And you have to guess too, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess... Is it an American whiskey? It is.
0: <laughs> let me give you a hint because okay. let me at least start it, here. It, okay. I don't drink anything under a hundred proof, so let's start there. Whoa! Okay. All All right.
1: Right. I already got I'm it. Already got it. Got it. I already got <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it already. Wild Turkey 101.
0: It was not.
1: Oh
0: damn it! E.H. Taylor Barrel Proof. Ooh. E. That oh is what. What are they? What are what
1: they? What's the proof on that?
0: Like 112 or something like that? They vary, but the one that I was drinking, I want to say was closer to 120, if I remember, the very first time, and I fell in love with it having no idea what it was and having no idea of the proof, and so I'm just sipping on it at a friend's house all night, and he just sees the bottle going down, and he finally comes over and goes, um... So, do you know the proof on yeah. that? <laughs> um, you're not going to be able to stand up. Where are
1: you from? I'm or, wonder-
0: yes, originally Pasadena, California.
1: You're drinking. You're drinking whiskey, and Pas- because it doesn't seem like a traditional bastion of whiskey drinking There's out there. A- how did you come? How did you come to whiskey?
0: My family says that I was born in the wrong part of the country. Okay. I grew up with a, so we're talking about the music being stolen, right? So my father was one of the original Motown hit makers. So most of the, the big Motown songs that you've heard, that you've sung, that you've played, and he, either, pie, wrote he, pre- bun- he either wrote it or he wrote that All of that stuff. He either wrote it or produced it. A great number wow. of it. I actually have a friend that's in Lynchburg that has the big barbecue place there, Barrel House. And he sends me a text message yesterday. He says, I'm bugging out right now because I just found out your father wrote, you've made me so very happy. (laughs) Wait, is this the wrecking
1: wrecking crew? Is Uh, that what it's called? The wrecking crew?
0: uh, No, no. His name is Frank Wilson and but no the originally they were called hitmakers the original ones okay and so they were the, they were the motown this is this is when it's still hitsville usa this is the beginning so this is my dad this is the household i grew up in and keith will tell you my husband will tell you cuz he's sitting here i in, i bring him to my parents home for the first time and he looks at me with this face of i don't understand because everywhere were gold and platinum records and I had never mentioned to him that my family was in the business and I listened to country music. That's all he knew. Wait, wait,
1: what's wait, 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 what's wait, 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 wait. I know. Hold on a second. I know. African American woman I grows up know. in Pasadena listening to country music.
0: I know. While drinking whiskey. I know. It's a problem. I, I was born in There's the something. Wrong, the time the space the continuum place. is
1: being turned <laughs> here. Something. <laughs> I,
0: was, I was born in the wrong place. But we, you know, this this story. This is what's fascinating about to me about the Nearest Green story about the Uncle Nearest brand is the way that things came together. The fact that a person who had been in the Tennessee whiskey business for 31 years who is Miss Mary Bobo's great-granddaughter coming out of retirement to make sure we got this whiskey right and to make sure that we are constantly improving everything that we're doing and there's certain processes to that uh, whiskey that we do that no one else in the industry does because of her. But the story, I really truly believe all of this happened I don't think it's because I chose it. I really don't. I believe that there are certain things in life that choose you. I believe this chose me, and the reason I believe this, even though I don't talk about this a lot on interviews, because it, it's a little bit freaky, but the reason why I believe that it chose me is that there, were, there have only been four people to really, truly keep the name of Nearest Green alive over the years. The, the first person was, the, was Nearest Green's granddaughter. Mammy, who would sit on her porch that was near the distillery, Jack Daniel Distillery, and she would make sure everyone who came knew, my granddaddy made the whiskey for them. And every person, you could not be on her porch and not know that. And the second person was Jack's biographer, who, while writing Jack's biography, mentions Nearest and his boys 50 times. You're talking about a biography that was written at the height of the Civil Rights era, and you are mentioning an African American and his family the second most times of any family in the entire book. And then the third person is Clay Risen, who Fred and I were talking Wait, about earlier, yep. New York Time. I'm the fourth
2: person. Wow, well, I'm, the story is remarkable, and you're so brave, by the way. <laughs> uh, I mean, it might seem like from a journalist's point of view, it was like a no-brainer. Like, oh, wow, what a great thing to be pursuing and looking into, but... It, You've got to have come up against so much, as I mentioned, so much resistance, so many people care. telling you not to bother, not to look. That story's been covered. It can't be true. Yeah. Oh, what a cute story! No way. And so, thank you for for pursuing it and for continuing to dig. Because yeah. I still feel like you'll keep going. There'll always be oh. more. Yeah. I haven't um, stopped. Who is be- who's made this whiskey for you? Then is it yeah. is it Nearest family? Are they still around?
0: Yeah. So this is so our our head of whiskey operations is from Jack's family. Oh. It's it's very much from Jack's family. When we were just at Tales of the Cocktail, however, the person celebrating in the room was one of Nearest's descendants. And so there's always, almost at all times, there is always a Nearest descendant or a Jack descendant that's always with us. That's always around. That's always a part of this process. And that is not... That is not going to change. So, when we, so the premium age that you're having right now is anywhere between, it's a blend of nine year old to 11 year old. Well, we've only been in business for two years. So, I'm always very, very clear. We purchase all of our premium aged in barrels. And no, wait, let's not go you, there again. Can, can, can oh, can absolutely. <laughs> I was, I le- listen, we, we, we had, we had, a, I, had a,
1: I wrote a piece about Uncle Nearest for Rob Report and there was a,
0: there was a particular distillery that was not happy about being mentioned in it because I do not confirm our source because we're not allowed to. Oh. I can only confirm what... But s- I, being the
1: crack journalist I am, I uncovered it, it on my own.
0: <laughs> and that, Well, uh, well yes. it, is, it is a... And we, we joke about it because we have a single barrel coming out in London. And w- there was one of the guys from the British Bourbon Society, and he says, Fawn, we know you're not allowed to say who you're getting your whiskey from, but can you wink twice if it's Jack Daniels, nudge once if it's George Dickel, or just smile really big if it's Pritchard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, was any of those people? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> oh, it's out <laughs> there anyway. <laughs> Come on. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> So I guess is that would it be right to say that when you are eventually um, able to sell the bottles that you're currently making yourself, yes. it, there will be a difference in taste. It will be.
0: At, well, we're doing. We're following. So our premium age will continue to have the eighty four eight eight mash bill. Our our Tennessee silver that we will put in barrels, but it is a fully finished product. So we take it out a little lighter in color than this. Mm-hmm. And we remove all of the color using the natural carbon from coconut shells. So it is a crystal clear premium whiskey. And that particular prop, that particular one, thank you, thank is you. 70 and a half uh, corn, 3 and a half corn malt, 10% barley, 8% rye. Um, 10% barley and 6% rye, right? Yes. And that will continue. And so we will also allow some of that to continue to age in barrels, but I'm a big fan of how whiskey tastes at 8 years old, 9 years old, 10 years old. That's to me, is the sweet spot, so that's, mm-hmm. where, that's where we'll pull it out.
1: Do you do you envision a day where you'll be the master distiller?
0: It sounds I mean, like she's on her way. Here it kind of does sound like you're here, on your way. Here's the funny thing, is I was literally in the car this past week, and I was thinking about how much has gone into making sure we get this right for nearest and realized, I believe, that if I decided to truly get behind that process of it versus the corporate side, but that process of it, I believe I'd be the first African-American female distiller, <gasps> master distiller. <gasps> Congratulations. Congratulations. So I'm, I'm, I'm highly considering it. I'm teasing <laughs> you. World teasing. <laughs> crowd loves that. Um,
1: Cheers. Well, you know, there's something about it. There's something to be said about it's a different kind of fulfillment yes. that you get from your work, because there are no shortcuts, there are no... Like, when, when you're doing this, when you're making the whiskey, when you're, you know, it's not like you're trying to go, how, how can we... You know, It's a craft. Yes. And, it, and it's a thing that, you know, we all kind of do our thing. We're writing magazine articles and books and traveling and doing this, but when you're there, you're out in the distillery and you're, you're working with people who, you know, frankly, that's, that's their life, man, is making yeah. this thing and making it and and I gotta figure that's gotta be really rewarding.
0: Not only is it rewarding is if you think about it and people when we first came into the industry the, the thought was pervasive that they're they're building this to sell it. And I had to start saying on pretty much every interview because there was this thought process and that we are building a brand to outlive all of us. Because our goal is to have on the shelves for our great-great-great-grandchildren and the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of Nearest Green to have on every shelf there is Jim, Johnny, Jack, and Nearest. That is our goal. So we go in there every single day working incredibly hard to make sure that we put out a product that is good enough to sit on the shelves, on the top shelves, with the best of the best.
1: Wow. Yes. And what's What's retail on? So. How many different exp- expressions do you have? Two. The, you so two.
0: the premium age, the Tennessee silver. We do have some. So our first single barrel, as I mentioned, is in conjunction with the British Bourbon Society. Oh, is We're that very saying, excited about that. you going to London next month. I am. And, and the whiskey is preceding me. So I'm hoping to time it so I land when they land. Because if you follow the British Bourbon Society, the excitement for the single barrel arriving across the pond is high. And so we are, and so that one is an 11-year-old barrel, and we are, we did a tasting there about two months ago, and it was a packed house at Milroy's, and everyone got to give their opinions on which one, and there were three single barrels that no one could decide between, so it was almost like a coin toss, if you will, (laughs) to figure out which one do they go with, so they went with 112 proof. But that single barrel will come out, and then after that, we will do additional single barrels at 10 and 11 years old. But we want to stick I, – I, I'm not a big fan of having a big li- – just ex- lines of ex- extensions and extensions and extensions and the flavored and all the rest of that. I think other brands can do it. I think for us, we have to put out an excellent product every single time because we're representing a legacy that was forgotten for almost 160 years. Yeah. It's got to be spot-on perfect every time we put it in the bottle. So I don't know that we will go b- more than this anytime soon. If What's we,
1: retail on the bottles?
0: On the age, is fifty nine ninety nine. On the Tennessee Silver, forty three ninety nine.
1: And if people want to get more information, it's just UncleNearest.com?
0: UncleNearest.com, and it's N-E-A-R-E-S-T, like nearest and dearest. <laughs> and
1: you're on social media?
0: Oh, everywhere, yes.
1: Everywhere. Yeah.
0: How can we find you? you can find well on Uncle Neris so I follow all of these so we've got over I want to say well over two hundred thousand followers on wow. social media and you will see me popping in a lot I engage with the folks on there and uh, it's a and you'll see Nes's family on there a lot saying, oh, lovely thank you for supporting our ancestors legacy
2: yes yeah.
1: well I got to say I am this has been such a uh, one of the you know more enlightening shows that we've done and and, and it's such a a great story about Uncle Nearest Nearest Green, uh, and uh, I, I, you know, so good to have you on.
0: Thank you, thank and, you for sharing uh, the story.
1: I want to uh, I want to thank uh, Curio, really cool spot right here yeah. in the middle of the French Quarter. Yep. really got a nice little vibe to it. I, I appreciate those guys having us out here. Um, of course, producer Bo. Yay. Keeping it real, keeping it real with the sound. Yeah, there he is, keeping it real.
2: And the editing. Don't yes, to cut all he, he, the editing. There's
1: so much editing going to be going on. Uh, and uh, last but not least, I want to thank Fawn Weaver. Fawn Weaver uh, not only uncovered an amazing story about an amazing man, but then she took that story and decided to run with it and create a legacy that is going to live for a very, very long time. And that's and that's the whiskey we're drinking today, Uncle Nearest. And so I want to thank you for that. Thank that you. Yeah. And uh, anytime you want to come back on the show, we'll have you back. And uh, right, and we can go down to Tennessee, Emma, and visit that. You and-
0: guys need to. We, we just begun doing founder's tours for, for bartenders, beverage directors. It starts at the home on the bottle in my research room, and it ends at our distillery. It's a phenomenal tour. It's borderline... Spiritual.
1: (laughs) Well, I can only say this, Fawn. Having you on this show, you've made me so very happy. And your dad wrote this song. He did. He did. Oh, dad.
0: I have no doubt my dad, when he was here, did not drink my entire life. But I have no doubt he and Jack and Nearest are in heaven with my niece and they're raising a glass. glass. oh Let's
1: raise one cheers. with them.
0: Let's do it. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. Thank you. Cheers. 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 Like cheers. You guys. made me so, so. very happy.
1: I'm so glad you came into my life. It's a good show.